Hi everyone, thank you for coming. We'll start in around eight minutes. Um, in the meantime, I will post in the chat um, the paper link and I will put up also the presentation so you can check it out in the meantime. And our guest speaker's website, which is really also interesting to check. So there's an Hi, Nozomi. Sorry, I was chatting and I was on screen, so I couldn't see you. How are you? No problem. Good. I just joined. Can you hear me? Yeah, perfectly. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you switch like from screen to screen to copy the links and <laughs> there it is should be working for everyone please let me know if it doesn't then i'll check out the settings again but i think it should be fine hmm. how's your day so far i'm very happy today because portugal just won <laughs> six <laughs> to exciting. one <laughs> like in the soccer world cup yeah that's so. amazing yeah it's really amazing and uh yeah so usually it's like watching portuguese game for me and my family is like very stressful like very <laughs> emotional and very stressful because it's like they are losing or like almost or it's usually it's horrible but until now it's pretty relaxing the world cup so <laughs> <laughs> nice well, congratulations. That's exciting. <laughs> well, thank you. I was actually rooting for, um, you know, for teams that were not usually would come for like Japan did so well in the group and then South Korea and the US, didn't, you know, US is not like a big soccer uh, nation. So I was happy, but then they kind of got kicked out lately. Like, well, that was sad, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's probably not interesting, but we have some time. <laughs> I wish I were, you know, a normal person and could, could tell you more about what I think about soccer. I'm married to Brit, actually, except he doesn't watch football. So, <laughs> yeah, I only watch um, the. Um these type of cups you know world cup or european cup it's like i grew up with that so even my mm -hmm. great grandmother she used to watch those games yes my family's definitely into it and i'm just not very good at keeping up with any sort of sport so yeah other than that i wish like i'm all for olympics and stuff but I kind of never get around to actually follow it then. <laughs> I watched actually a really good movie recently that was about two Syrian um, sisters that escaped and then found asylum in Germany. And they were swimmers. They were training actually for being qualified in the Olympics in Syria and were, I think they were qualified with their times. 
And then one of the sisters ended up swimming for the um, refugee team. Like the Olympics decided to make a ref, like um, yeah, a refugee team that don't have a home anymore. And it was such a beautiful movie. But then one sister is actually being arrested because she ended up going back and helping refugees that, you know, a lot of them die in in the ocean to help. And then they claimed she would like, um, she was for, for an organization that helps these refugees survive. And their EU is being very shady, like just leaving them out in the ocean and they don't want people really to help. So she was arrested for it. I don't know what's... But anyways, it's a very beautiful story in general. I think I saw a trailer on Netflix. Is that where you saw it or...? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that was good. Yeah, I'll check it out. Um, that's all. He, he's already, um, thanks for your question. And that's exactly what we will be discussing. Um, so, um, thanks for posting that question already. And then we will for sure get around to it. Uh, once we get to present it, like when Nozomi gets to present on the talk and then the Q and A. So yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, let me, I've been chatting, let me share on Twitter that we are about to start. And if you feel like this is something people would like that you know, feel free to share it. It's a public room, so anyone can just um, come and we welcome uh, people to join us. Um, and yeah, we will start in around three minutes. So um, it would be, yeah, it will be really interesting really looking forward to to this and Nozomi of course thank you for taking the time you know to make that count and come here I know it's probably you know like you have probably a lot of things to do so we really appreciate yeah, no problem thanks for the invite <laughs> yeah and um if you like discussions like this, um, follow the club. We also have uh, actually a Spotify and a YouTube account and I have to get into the habit of sharing those links too. But um, yeah, we will have um, a little bit of a break around the holidays and then we'll start fresh again in January. So we have a few more talks before the holidays, but not too many. And then um, we'll restart again in January. I'll have to take time to organize the program. But <laughs> so, it will be for sure exciting and um, a bunch of guest speakers already promised um, to come back. So um, yeah. If you missed talks, you will for sure get um, opportunity, at least for some, to speak with them um, in the new year. And hi, Victoria, meet Nozumi. Uh, Victor uh, and yeah, Nozumi, meet Victoria. She's a wonderful 
wonderful moderator and she does this really interesting she started doing this really interesting beginning interview part it's totally her idea and it it adds so much to a discussion i was like the traditional conference style room <laughs> that i did and victoria added this more personal um interview part which is always very interesting so hi victoria Thank you. Thank you for that very kind introduction and generous. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Nizomi and, and Katarina. Sorry, I can't see my phone very well if I pronounce anyone's name wrong. Um, yeah, really looking forward to this talk today and, and was so interested in reading your bio and your information. It was really beautiful, the words that you used in there. I, Katarina, I don't know if you've already mentioned mm -hmm. that. But that acknowledgement of inclusivity is—it's—it's it's just so appreciated and important, and it's wonderful to that you, um, you know, that you took the time and energy to say the things that you say. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't, and it's right on time. So that was the perfect start. For <laughs> For this. So thank you, Victoria. And um, go team. <laughs> exactly. That was as if we have pra had practiced it. <laughs> it was spontaneous. Um, yeah. So welcome everyone to Science Society, and of course, a special welcome to you, Nuzumi. And um, and before we start, uh, let me introduce you to the audience so they know a little bit about you. Um, so. Um, Dr. Um, Ando, um, she did her bachelor in science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and her PhD at Cornell University. And then later on, she did a postdoc at um, the MIT. And um, Nozomi was born in Denver and she grew up in the in the Boston area and she um, she the decision why I, I thought that was really cool also why she really liked um, the um, she did a physics major in at MIT and a music performance minor uh, which is also really interesting because I kind of feel that or realize maybe just bias, but that a lot of our um, guest speakers here kind of have a passion for both for music and science, which is really interesting. And she was drawn to the spaceship like feel of the Cornell high energy synchrotron source chess and went to Cornell University for a PhD in physics. And she grad, she uh, was in Saul Gruner's lab, where she made her own diamond cells for high-pressure X-ray scattering studies, and then went on um, as a postdoc in Kathy Drennan's lab at MIT, and there she developed a fascination for metalloenzymes. And then later in 2014, she was appointed as assistant professor of chemistry at Princeton University and started a research program that combines 
X-ray physics and structural enzymology. And in 2018, the Lab moved to Cornell University, where she joined the Faculty of Chemistry and Chemical Biology. And um, yeah, as I said, outside her, the lab, she is a classically trained soprano. Um, so um, she takes her hobby quite seriously. And um, she also enjoys observing and naming wild woodland animals. And um, she, um, that's interesting because I kind of feel the <laughs> same that the kitchen is her lab outside of the lab. And I always think if you can follow a lab recipe, then you can also cook. <laughs> because some people, like students, tell me, oh, I can't really cook. I said, if you can follow a PCR, recipe you can follow like a regular recipe but um, yeah so um where she bakes bread and um me uh, she makes miso and various japanese um uh, recipes or cooking art um which is really interesting and also uh, her current tools of choice are japanese donabi pots made of ancient clay and the clay is sourced from regions that used to form the bad lake of Biwa in prehistoric times and is thought to contain lots of fossilized microbes, which is also really interesting because it kind of closes the circle there. It does, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, this is such a pleasure and such a treat to meet you here and to get to know you. And Victoria, the stage is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can we just, just talk for a long time? <laughs> there's, there's, I had so many questions coming up. For, for one thing, I was thinking, what do you name those woodland creatures? Like, um, you know, <laughs> friendly it's, names? Or <laughs> It's probably too stupid to share. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Is there some sense of humor there? Are we, are we sticking with like genus species? Or are we actually naming them like Hank? <laughs> <laughs> it's more like the the latter. Um, yeah. yeah, beautiful, um, beautiful green, or that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and and you make skimona like that's so wonderful. You what a lucky kitchen you have, and any any of your friends. It's just such a favorite thing of mine, and I've never been able to accomplish that. Although, um, you know, I have to say, I I rec I, I want to honor and recognize them you know, the expertise that comes from practice. So, uh, you know, this may be why. So anyway, um, yeah, and it was interesting to hear about, to read about your, also your music career, uh, because we've, we're finding so much so that when inter we interview the guests who come here, that many people have had their, their beginning of their passion, you know, exploring their passion in music. So then I'd like mm -hmm. to ask you, um, and knowing a little bit about you, but, but when did you first recognize that you had an interest in science? And what do you think was that, that which provided that spark? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I can say that, you know, when I was very little, I was not that interested in science. I was um, much more into art um, and I was always in an imaginary world. So I was not really 
paying attention in class. I was, I was the sort of kid who was having daydreams all the time. Um, but because my family was moving a lot, my parents wanted to make sure that I didn't get behind in classes. And we were moving, you know, from the U.S. to Japan and back to the U.S. And, and they felt that, you know, the one thing that was universal was math. And so they didn't want me to get behind in math. And so that was one thing that, you know, I was um, somewhat disciplined about doing since childhood. And um, it was kind of natural then for me to go to MIT for my undergrad. Um, I didn't know initially what I wanted to do um, as, as a major, but I, I knew that I didn't want to be a math major. And so I thought I was being slightly rebellious by choosing physics, but, you know, it's not that different in the end. Um, but I do think that, you know, what drew me to physics initially was uh, the, the sort of like simplicity and the elegance um, of like the description of nature that uh, physics provides. And that's, that was really appealing to me. And initially I wasn't that interested in biology um, or even chemistry. And, and then it's kind of funny now that that's, I do both of those things now. I don't know if I answered your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely, you did. I, I, um, I, you might be the first person who's been in the room who um, said that they had rebelled through studying physics. I'm not going to be a math major. <laughs> yeah, that is cutting edge. <laughs> I'm wicked. That's great. I love that. Yeah, thank you. So then, can you can you take us on a, a little? journey up to the work that you're about to present today because this is it is I think maybe it's one of those things that um, you know when we read it just as, as humans we read about what oxygen was toxic to early life and it takes you know it takes us aback a little bit and we have to really consider that and and how did how did early life get around that so um, yeah so maybe just backing myself up if you can take us up to the point at which you're doing your research that you're presenting today Sure. Is, you mean like background material to the research? Um, just or your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and really okay. it's it's your choice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's guest, guest choice how you choose to answer this. But yeah, just like, a, you know, um, not ex an exhaustive journey, but just things that, that stuck out to you that you might want to share that brought you up to this point. Uh, sure. Um, so I can tell you, so when I was a physics major um, at MIT, initially, I didn't know which area of research I was interested in. And I already said that I wasn't interested in biology to the point that I actually, at MIT, everybody has to take freshman biology. And I, I delayed it until my senior year because I didn't think that I would enjoy it. Um, but it was actually in a physics class that I first became um, aware of biological problems that were really interesting to me. And one was a protein folding problem. And up until that point, I thought that biology was, you know, a lot of just memorization. I had this like idea that it was just, you know, about complexity, as opposed to sort of breaking down the complexity, which is, you know, what I thought physics was about. Um, and when I learned about the protein folding problem, I thought, well, that is really interesting and really elegant. Um, then I, I really became hooked on proteins at that point, And I was probably a sophomore at the time, and um, the professor who talked about that, um, his research, and it, it, it wasn't, he actually was in polymer physics, but uh, the, the motivation for his research was in proteins and, and um, 
that's what got me hooked. And I joined his lab. Um, and, you know, more and more, I was like becoming enamored by proteins. And, um, and uh, when it was time to think about graduate school, like I was really, I should also mention that being a physics major um, at MIT, especially the time that I was there, there were very few women. Uh, in my graduating year, there were only 11% of us uh, were women, 11% um, of the physics majors. I mean, so um, I found that, you know, I found that it was really hard to feel like I fit in in my class and the lab provided, like research provided a place where I could belong. And so uh, research became also like really important for me. Uh, and then I wanted to go to graduate school to do it more. Um, and uh, um, oh, one thing that happened actually was my undergraduate advisor really unfortunately passed away. He had a heart attack and he was only 53. And that was totally shocking and really upsetting. And but I was so into the research at that point that I didn't want to leave his lab, even though the lab was essentially becoming disbanded. Um, and I, even though that also meant that I wasn't going to have a letter of recommendation from an undergraduate advisor who knows me well, I just stayed in the lab and I, I, I got permission from the department to keep doing my senior thesis work there. Um, and then when it was time to go to graduate school, sorry, this is like turning into a long story. <laughs> I'll just say that, you know, um, I, I found a mentor who really appreciated that way of thinking about research. And, um, and that was really helpful into sort of getting into the field of biophysics and really getting into studying proteins. Um, and then ultimately, though, I, I felt that I, I, in order to really learn about proteins, I had to leave the physics department and and go to a department that really cares about molecules. And that's how I ended up in chemistry. Um, and my lab is kind of at the interface of, of both of these worlds. Um, and we tried to develop uh, new, use physics to develop new new methods to, to sort of study proteins. But ultimately, like we try to answer questions about proteins. I'm sorry, uh, that was a very long answer. No, no, please, <laughs> my goodness, you've just given us a gift, and please never apologize for anything that you're, any speech like that, or any speech, you know, we, we must apologize for our presence. And that was a great story of overcoming adversity, too, which is really, you know, it's, here we're in Science Society, we're about to hear specifically what, you, you know, what we have in the title, and we never know all of the nonlinear benefits that are coming to us from from being here so that's you know just a really great example and i'm sorry that you had that loss and you know you kept going and and also that's very sweet about hearing about a lab that cared about molecules <laughs> we got to have more consideration in this world for molecules and you're clearly a compassionate person so uh, at this point i will pass you the mic and just let you know that um, welcome dr shah dr shah katarina and i are here to help moderate this space and share all the questions that are coming to you in the room chat after you've given your talk and facilitate a Q&A. So thank you so much, Nozomi, and um, the mic is yours. Okay, thank you so much. Um, and thanks everyone for, for coming. This is my first time using the Clubhouse app and it's, um, I might mess up, <laughs> but hopefully it will be okay. Um, and so right now, you know, I have my title slide up. So if everybody wants to check out the slides, um, the title of the talk is Evolution of an Ancient Enzyme. And, you know, I was told beforehand that it's going to be a really diverse 
audience, if you have any questions in the middle, feel free to interrupt me. Um, what I've prepared is like two sort of short stories in case we don't get to everything because, you know, I, I don't want to overload you with information. So we'll just see how far we get. Um, so um, I'll just go to the slide two, um, which is like, you know, kind of the main story. So I'll tell you about this, the evolution of this family. I'll introduce the enzyme family and then tell you about the evolution of that um, and what we learned about it. Um, this is actually, this slide is a little outdated because both of these papers have been published now, but it's the work of three very talented graduate students, Audrey and Darren, who are from my lab, and Matt Spence, who is from Colin Jackson's lab um, at the Australian National University. And this was also a fantastic collaboration that uh, spanned multiple years uh, through the, through a pandemic and wildfires at, at, in Australia. So um, a real triumph. So um, if we go to slide three, um, I'm, what you see is on top is what is known as the central dogma of biology. The only thing that I really want you to take away from this is that you've, I'm sure, you know, many of you, most of you have heard of these molecules, right? DNA, RNA, and proteins. Um, these are, you know, major classes of macromolecules uh, and genetic information usually gets passed from DNA to RNA to proteins. And the building blocks of DNA, so these are all long polymers, um, and the DNA and RNA, the building blocks for them are called deoxyribonucleotides and ribonucleotides. Okay, so these are the individual building blocks that get turned into these long chains that eventually we call DNA and RNA. Um, and what's kind of interesting is that in nature, the way deoxyribonucleotides are made um, is that it's actually made from ribonucleotides. So when I show this arrow going, curving to the left, it's showing the direction of the reaction. Um, and the fact that this goes in this direction is really interesting already. And the reason is because there is a hypothesis that you know ancient life began with an RNA world. So that RNA was potentially the oldest of these macromolecules. And today, you know, we would consider it a DNA protein world. So the fact that um, the building blocks of DNA are ma made from the building blocks of RNA suggests that this chemistry uh, was really important. Um, and well, so we, we think that based on the, the sort of ancientness of the, R the this sort of hypothesized RNA, RNA world, that this chemistry must have been also ancient. And so, um, so that's really interesting already. Now in modern organisms, this chemistry is done by a protein called ribonucleotide reductase or RNR. So that's the, that's the word in blue right there. And because it does this chemistry, you know, already people had sort of proposed that this is an ancient enzyme family um, that has um, this transition from the RNA to DNA world would have happened like billions of years ago, by the way. So like really ancient, um, or at least, you know, it is, um, a descendant of that chemistry. Um, and the, the enzyme family, the, the RNR family, uh, is also like biochemically interesting because, um, uh, it uses this, what I'm showing here is a cysteine radical. So cysteine is an amino acid, like one of the 20 regular amino acids in a protein. And, um, it normally has like SH at the very end, but there is like a special cysteine inside the active site, like the, the most important part of the protein uh, that forms a radical and that's an unpaired uh, electron and that's highly reactive. And this is like 
the sort of thing that ignites chemistry in this protein. And so the fact that this protein uses this kind of chemistry, it's called radical chemistry, is already really interesting from a biochemical standpoint. Um, and this RNR is used by really like every organism that is free living. Um, the only exceptions that we know of are actually some tiny parasites and some viruses that don't need to make DNA, uh, which is kind of weird to think about. A lot of viruses, well, so viruses that don't have RNRs, for example, just like hide the RNRs from the host. Um, so anyway, this is an introduction to that enzyme family. And if we move on to slide four, um, I'll give you an idea of how that radical, that cysteine radical is made. And so to generate that kind of radical, you need something to, to, to help the protein make that radical in the first place. Um, and the way the RNR family does it is through um, having a cofactor. So cofactor is, you know, could be a small molecule or it's basically something that is not just a, a pure protein that is attached to the protein to help it do its chemistry. Um, and it's, it's part of catalysis in the protein. And one cofactor that the RNRs use is this one, adenosylcobalamin. So the, the molecule on the bottom, this giant molecule on the bottom, that is adenosylcobalamin. Uh, the adenosyl part is sort of colored in, in red, uh, pink. It's that letter A, it's like a shorthand version of that, that part of the chemical structure. Um, and this is actually related to vitamin B12. So this is, um, I don't know if it, you know this, but vitamin B12 looks like this. It's um, pretty wild if you're, as a physicist, when I came to, into the chemistry field, I was really like blown away to know that it was such a giant molecule. Um, but anyway, in the way adenosylcobalamin can work to generate a, a radical is that the bond that is in red, um, that's a carbon to co cobalt bond can uh, sort of, uh, sort of lice in a way, so it breaks apart in a way that it generates a radical, like an unpaired electron. You can see it as a red dot and that, initial radical can then go on to uh, uh, react with the, the cysteine, that the special cysteine amino acid, and to generate that cysteine radical. So this is one of the cofactors that the RNRs use, but there are actually two other major classes of um, biochemical cofactors. So if we go to slide five, you'll see three columns, okay? And this is traditionally how the RNRs have been sort of classified or discussed. Um, it, and it's been discussed in terms of its biochemistry, like how it generates this cysteine radical. Um, and there are three major known, um, three known major classes, the class one, two, and three. Um, and the class two one is in the middle. Um, it's in this blue box to indicate that um, you just need this cofactor inside the, the, the protein. So the blue box is the RNR protein um, and that's all it needs. It doesn't need another protein. The class one and the class three RNRs though require another protein to do, uh, to generate the cysteine radical. So for example, in the class one, um, it requires another protein that's called a ferritin. Uh, it's, that's a type of fold of a, of a protein. And it's really just ferritins are very um, good at holding metals. Um, and so, this complicated like chemical structure in the bottom is, is showing you uh, sort of amino acids within the ferritin fold that allows it to hold up to two metals, M1 and M2. Um, and this um, can sort of assemble into a, a cofactor that's attached to the protein and then generate a, a radical 
uh, in this case on a nearby tyrosine, that's what the X residue is right there, the amino acid that says X equals two. Um, and then this radical actually has to travel uh, long distance to another protein, to the active site where that special cysteine is. And, and to do that, it needs to uh, pass um, the radical onto a stack of other tyrosines. Uh, that, that's what the, the thing is inside the blue box um, in the catalytic subunit. Um, the class three um, uh, RNRs use another totally different mechanism, and this uses iron sulfur chemistry. So you can see in, in the pink box where it says activase, um, there is like a, a cube shaped um, thing that has irons and sulfurs. That's a, uh, known as a four iron, four sulfur cluster. And this is a type of um, cofactor that can assemble um, under anaerobic conditions. So when there's no oxygen, it can form and it be stable. Um, and so the class three RNRs uh, uses these clusters um, ultimately to, in, and then the activase sort of interacts with the catalytic subunit to ultimately pass on this radical uh, to another amino acid, which initially goes to a, a, gly, a glycine and then to the cysteine radical. So now if you're not a biochemist, you might say like, what, what is the significance about these? So the next thing that I wanna talk about is, um, so if you go to slide six, is the oxygen sensitivity, um, which um, you could see, just make sure that I'm on the right side, yeah. Um, so you can see that um, the oxygen sensitivity really depends on the class. So if you look at the class three enzymes, Iron sulfur clusters are extremely sensitive to oxygen. They, they will break, degrade into um, other forms of clusters of these, these um, atoms, uh, or they might just disappear altogether. Um, and this, this glycine radical that is, that is shown in the blue box that initially forms, um, that gets passed on to the cysteine radical is also extremely sensitive to oxygen. And so the class three RNRs, you know, you can already get a picture um, are used by organisms that you know live under these anaerobic conditions. Um, the cobalamin cofactor that's used by class two RNRs, on the other hand, um, not you know uh, particularly like especially sensitive to oxygen um, compared to the class three RNRs, um, and it doesn't require oxygen. So this is kind of like in the middle of one and three. Uh, whereas the class one enzymes, you can see in the ferritin subunit um, between the, the two metals, M1 and M2, there's a bridging oxygen and that oxygen comes from molecular oxygen. So the class one RNRs in order to do chemistry is actually dependent on oxygen. So this is really interesting um, because when you look at these, what's known biochemically about this family, already you get a picture that you know these enzymes must have existed for a long time and have adapted somehow to changing levels of oxygen on earth. So one of the things that you know had been hypothesized for a really long time was that in fact that it appeared in this order that's shown by this arrow that the class three RNRs, which are oxygen sensitive, appeared first um, when there was no oxygen on earth before oxygenic photosynthesis filled the atmosphere uh, with you know, a lot of oxygen. Um, and then the class two RNRs appeared next. And then when, um, after, you know, photosynthesis had filled the air with a lot of oxygen, then the class one RNRs appeared. So this, this is what people had 
hypothesize based just purely on sort of biochemistry and thinking about these cofactors. Um, but it, it's actually a very difficult question uh, because if you think about things like, well, um, what sort of, which of these cofactors may have existed um, in the um, last universal common ancestor, um, actually it turns out that cobalamin might've been already there at a time that these iron sulfur clusters were there. So just from these sort of arguments, it's actually really hard to tell the order of evolution. And, and so for that, you need to do um, this sort of phylogenetic analysis, which I'll tell you about. Uh, but before I get there, right, so this is like the sort of showing the cofactors um, and the box, each box here represents a different protein subunit. This is like, you know, when I say subunit, you can just think of it as like, you know, um, different parts of a protein. Um, if we go to slide seven, though, you'll see what these proteins actually look like. So um, the class two RNRs is structurally the simplest in the sense that you don't need another subunit. So it only has a catalytic subunit. And you could see um, that uh, you might be able to see uh, that it has some symmetry. So there's the right side and the left side. Um, so there's actually two copies usually um, in, in most of these RNRs and it forms something known as a dimer when it's two copies. Uh, but you can see this like magenta colored stick thing, like um, this little mess in the middle of each of these um, uh, uh, sort of protein chains and that, that is the cobalamin cofactor. Um, so in contrast, the class one RNRs has a, the ferritin subunit that I told you about. You can see the orange spheres in there. That's where the metals would be normally found uh, where the radicals first um, formed and then that radical has to travel all the way to the catalytic subunit and um, if you look inside um, the sort of like bluish greenish region of each uh, sort of half of the catalytic subunit you might see like a yellow sphere that yellow sphere is like the location of the cysteine um, the site of the cysteine radical so that, that's where the radical has to go to so it's very long distance um, and then the class 3 RNRs we have uh, the activase protein, which is a separate one. And what you see is like uh, orange and yellow balls. That is the iron sulfur cluster. Okay, so we'll come back to look at these protein structures again, but I just wanted to sort of introduce the chemistry and, um, and what that means in terms of the actual proteins. So if we go to uh, slide seven, um, what I want you to sort of take away with so far is that this ribonucleotide reductase family, the RNR family, you know, has the potential to, to provide a molecular fossil record of life based on just the cofactor diversity are itself, um, and that it must have spanned, um, sort of, it, it's encoded in the family is the molecular adaptations that happened over a long time, uh, and billions of years ago. Um, and that the goal was by studying the evolution of this family, we learn something about our past, not their past, right? So something about our past uh, on this planet. So to study the evolution of any protein family, though, what you need to do is um, phylogenetic inference. So that, that is, um, if you go to slide nine, so I think many of you have seen you know, various sort of renderings of the phylogenetic tree, whether it be like very artistic or like a very, you know, like a rigorously uh, made one from bio, like modern bioinformatics methods. Um, a phylogenetic inference um, 
is actually like a very computationally extensive way of, of uh, figuring out how uh, currently existing things came to be. So uh, usually it's done on sequences, either a protein sequence or the, the gene sequence. Um, and the reason why this is so computationally demanding is because first of all, you need to have a huge set of sequences that sort of captures the, the diversity that's sort of in nature right now. And then, um, and then you have to sort of figure out how the amino acids in these sequences may have mutated to get to this point. Um, and that is really challenging computation. Um, and so the first step of that, um, this process is, um, if you go to slide 10, um, is a, a multiple sequence alignment. So you take the sequence of, um, you know, your enzyme of interest, for example, in this case, RNR, right, from all of the um, sort of organisms where it's been sequenced. Um, and um, there's much more nuance to this. You have to do some curation of this uh, sequence data set. But uh, the important thing is that, like, the, the, starting, the starting point of phylogenetic inference is so you have to have this matrix of a sequence alignment where you have an idea of, like, which amino acids uh, should align into a column. And then the whole goal of phylogenetic inference is to um, use, um, you have, you know, models of um, amino acid substitutions and, and sort of thinking about the rates at which this happened in order to be able to relate all of these different sequences together and figure out like when branchings occurred. So like you're going back in time um, by doing this, but you know, essentially, you're kind of building the tree uh, from the ground up um, in phylogenetic inference, and this has been like a goal of you know the biochemical field for a long time. But with RNR field, it's been very difficult to do phylogenetic inference, um, and the reason is because if you go to slide eleven, um, again, now I'm just focusing on the catalytic subunit. This is where the chemistry happens in the RNRs. Um, you can see that they're very different. Just looking at them, you can tell they're very different. So the structural diversity is coming directly from the fact that the sequences are extremely diverse. Um, and you can already tell, you know, that probably the, even the lengths of the sequences are different, right? And so that means that that initial step of making this multiple sequence alignment is already very difficult for an, a family of proteins that is this diverse. but if you want to learn about the evolution over such timescales as like billions of years, that's exactly what you have to do. Um, and so our approach to this problem was to focus. Um, so my lab, you know, we do a lot of structural studies. So we think about protein structure a lot. And um, these sort of examples that I'm showing on slide 11, they look like they're totally different, but actually a structural biologist, biologist sees this and sees patterns. And, if you go to slide 12, actually, if you focus on the area around this active site, um, around that sort of special cysteine that I told you, there is actually a motif. Um, and we can call this like the core, core fold of this protein. And that is conserved. So you can see that if we strip, out, strip away all of these sort of like things that make the, the structures different, um, what's left around this cysteine, the yellow ball, is really similar. Um, and 
So if we go to slide 13, I can sort of tell you a little bit more about this R&R fold. Um, and this, um, what I'm showing you on top is a three-dimensional structure. And below is, uh, in the cartoon is called a topology diagram in, in the field of structural biology. And the topology diagram is, is a way to think about secondary structure elements. So these arrows represent beta strands. The cylinders um, uh, represent uh, alpha helices. Uh, and those loops are literally connecting loops between these secondary structure elements. Um, and topology diagrams help you sort of think about, um, you know, like a way, uh, so it, it's kind of like a, um, you can sort of think about the overall structure of something that looks really complicated in 3D and how, you know, if you were to unfold it and sort of smush it onto like a, a piece of paper, how it would look like. So um, if we look at that topology diagram, you can see that there are actually two halves that look very similar. The first half, um, and so when we look at a protein sequence, we always start from the N-terminal end to go to the C-terminal end. So the first half is the left side. Um, you see that there is um, there is a set of uh, five uh, beta strands that are pointing downwards, and that forms a parallel a beta sheet that points uh, together. So it forms a wall, the inner wall of this barrel that's shown on the top side the, in the three-dimensional version. Um, and then on the outside of the um, this wall of beta, this beta sheet that's forming the inner wall is um, these four alpha helices, A, B, C, and D. And uh, the interesting thing about RNR is that there's actually sort of a duplication of that motif on the other side, except now the, the beta strands are pointing the opposite direction. And this barrel forms in three dimensions by kind of wrapping around together uh, such that, you know, the J beta strand will come next to the A uh, beta strand. Um, and then the two halves are connected by this yellow loop, which is called the finger loop. And it's called the finger loop because at the very tip of this loop is that special cysteine. Um, which kind of points out like a finger. Uh, and this type of fold is actually extremely unusual in, in the protein field or like all of proteins that we know of. Um, and this is kind of interesting because there are a lot of motifs that are, are found um, that are very common. And, you know, like a structural biologist would be able to recognize a lot of motifs that are, for example, deposited in the public protein data bank. Uh, but the RNR fold is very unique. Um, there, uh, it's, it's basically shared by only one other enzyme family that's very much related. So this is kind of interesting. Um, but the reason why I'm telling you about this unique fold is because, you know, now that, you know, we know that there is this unique fold in the RNR family, we can use that as an anchor to figure out how to align the sequences, even if they're extremely diverse, um, coming from totally unrelated sequences. Um, and so this is how we did, um, uh, sequence alignment, and we, we called it structure-based because we're using structural information, um, And but it, it was kind of like an iterative process of sort of increasingly um, adding more diverse sequences. Um, and then once we did that, uh, we were able to do phylogenetic inference. So uh, the result of that is on slide 14 here. Uh, we actually used two different sequence evolution models. 
of the top half, you can see it says LG plus R10. That's one type of sequence evolution model. On the bottom, it says WAG plus R10. That's another type. Um, the important thing I want you to take away from this is that um, you know, phylogenetic inference is very computationally expensive, and we had about 7,000 sequences in our, our alignment. Um, and because it was very diverse, it was also really, really difficult. Um, computationally, it took um, 1.4 million CPU hours to compute this. That was seven continuous months of uh, supercomputer time. Um, and it actually, in reality, it took us three years because we had to do it twice uh, because um, we noticed a mistake in the first trial. So it, it's, a, it's not like an easy feat, but it was, we were very glad to see the result in the end. So um, when you look at the, the, these 20 different replicates, what you notice is that the ones that are, have a blue sort of cloudy background, they have very similar topologies. So when we say, you know, a, a topology of a phylogeny, like a phylogenetic tree, we're looking at um, sort of like how the branchings are occurring. And you can see that um, there's like red portions, yellow portions, blue portions, and green portions. Um, and the branching is very similar, similar um, in these blue ones. And that, that is sort of like the fact that we're reproducing uh, similar topologies is telling us that we've achieved a solution that is reasonable. Um, and another thing that was really sort of promising to us immediately was that um, what we did here was we actually colored the sequences um, based on um, the known biochemical class. So um, can people still hear me? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not used to having like no feedback. So, okay, great. <laughs> um, uh, so, if you um, want, I can interrupt you. <laughs> sure, feel free to. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to explain this color coding on slide 14 for the people who just joined. Um, the the red is the class three, the ones that are, are sort of based on the sequence, we predict them to be biochemically the class three type. The yellow ones are predicted to be class two type. The blue ones are cl class one type, okay? And what you can see is that like the red sort of lines are all kind of coming up from one node, one point. And same with the yellow ones, same with the blue ones. And this is what we call uh, monophyletic uh, clades. So that these, these sort of groups of these um, branches are called clades. And uh, what was really promising and exciting to us with this initial result was that first of all, um, what is known to be biochemically different is also phylogenetically different. So uh, that means that there was some congruence between uh, computational method and what we understood from biochemistry. Um, but for those who have really good eyes, you might also notice that there's a green portion in, in all of these. Um, and these are uh, uh, sequences that you know were known to exist, but people hadn't really thought about them that much in the R&R field. Um, and these green um, uh, sort of clade, so it forms its own group, so it's a clade, um, was a, a clade that had never been uh, noticed before. So if you go to slide 15, you'll see that a little more clearly, this is, um, we're looking at one of the 20 replicates. And you can see now that um, the annotation of the biochemical classes one, two, and three, but now we have this, this sliver of, of green, the green clade. 
And those who are familiar with reading a phylogenetic tree can see already that this uh, green clade uh, extends very close to the origin of the circle, which is telling us that it's ancestral to something. It is actually like an ancestral clade to the class one and two. And I'll show that again in another slide. Um, but anyway, this was totally unexpected. The fact that there was a, a phylogenetically distinct clade that had no correlation to uh, sort of like the known major biochemical clades. Um, so if we go to slide 16, um, on the left is that phylogenetic tree, the same phylogenetic tree that I just showed you, except uh, it's it's collapsed. So all of the sort of... Uh, uh, wait, uh, Dr. Could you go into the significance of what that means? Like, so people have been ignoring it for a long time, then you come along and you keep finding this. What does it mean? Exactly. Yeah. So that that's exactly what I'm going to get into. Um, I could. So, well, I mean, this, there's a lot of significance. I think the reason why people hadn't noticed that there was a, a new clade. So if everybody goes back to slide 15, um, there are multiple reasons. One is that um, sort of past attempts at doing phylogenetic ph phylogenetic inferences, uh, people couldn't include all of the sequences. Um, if they were too diverse from what was like known and made the computation difficult. So either they used a really, really small data set, um, which excludes things like the, the green clade that doesn't have that many sequences that are currently known. Um, or um, there, there was actually one study that included these, um, the sequences in green, except it couldn't include the class three RNRs in that as well, because the class three RNRs are actually the most diverse. Um, and, and that was actually, you know, kind of the problem in this RNR field for a long time is that without having the class three RNRs is like, you can think of it as another anchor, anchor, like sort of a way to sort of further think about the evolution of, of these sequences with, without them, like it was really hard to get an accurate picture that the, this green clade was actually its own separate clade. Um, it, in fact, like, yeah, so this is actually the first time that we could tell that these sequences were different somehow. Um, and in terms of evolutionary significance, I'll get to that next. So if we go to uh, slide 16, um, on the left, we have that same phylogenetic tree, except in the collapsed version. Um, and this is rooted so-called at the midpoint. Um, and when it's rooted this way, you can see that um, the first branch that comes out is the class three clade. Um, and then we have the divergence of the class Oh, oh, sorry, I should say that I, we named this uh, tiny clade class O. So this zero with an, uh, a sort of dash through it, uh, we, we're calling it O just for convenience. Uh, and every time, you know, we start with like a branching point and something branches off that, that is like a divergence uh, um, event. So the class O, o RNRs diverged before um, the uh, class one and two is diverse from each other. So this is kind of what our phylogenetic inference was telling us. Um, and we had also done a separate type of phylogenetic analysis, um, uh, a new method called EVO velocity method, uh, sorry, EVO velocity analysis. Uh, if you're really interested in this, I, I recommend that you read this paper um, at the bottom here uh, by uh, he and Yang and Kim. 
Um, they are, um, so this is like a relatively new paper that you know came out very recently and it uses machine learning methods. And what's really interesting about this is that it doesn't use a sequence, the multiple sequence alignment uh, that phylogenetic inference requires. So it's really giving us like a complementary view into evolution. Um, and the plot on the right, the way to, the way I want you to read this is that every sort of uh, colored dot, and most of them are kind of merged together, so you can't tell that they're individual dots, corresponds to a sequence. Um, and what we're seeing is that the class three dots are like kind of its own island. And the reason is it's not connected to the other ones is because, you know, it had diverged such a long time ago that you know, it doesn't have a lot of sort of connecting features with the class one, two, and O RNRs. But what's really interesting about the right side of this plot is that class one and our uh, class two RNRs sort of share an interface. Um, and at that interface is the uh, class O sequences. So this is kind of telling us the same thing as our phylogenetic inference, which is that the class three RNRs are the most diverged. And then the class O RNRs, do we have a question here? Yeah, I do. Um so what do the arrows mean uh one second i'm just going to clip the the image uh what do the arrows like going around what do they mean like for someone who hasn't wasn't really familiar <laughs> with these types of diagrams you can think of it as like the directionality of like the um sort of proposed direction of the evolution so huh. you can think of it as like a flow plot um but you don't have to overthink this. The, the sort of main thing that I want you to get away from this is that it looks like the class O RNRs have like a really important um, sort of position in the evolution of the RNRs because it's at the interface between two known biochemical classes, the ones and the twos. Um, and this was really interesting because already, you know, I told you that for um, based on biochemistry arguments alone, uh, we would have thought that the class one RNRs were the most recently evolved ones because it requires oxygen to, to make that sort of radical uh, that, I, I, that I told you that is essential for a catalysis. So the fact that the class one RNRs don't uh, uh, kind of seem to have evolved in parallel with another mechanism, which is a class two RNRs, um, is really interesting. Um, and, and so the class O RNRs kind of like show that uh, the class one and two sort of uh, developed in parallel because it's like an ancestor clay to them. So we wanted to understand more about what the class O RNRs look like. Um, so if everybody goes to slide 17, um, that green clade expanded is what we see on the left here. And you see that, you know, there are a lot of like uncultured phages, um, but you'll see the word phage and virus a lot. They're both viruses. So phages are just known viruses of, of, um, of bacteria. And what's, really fascinating about the class, at least known sequences in the class O clade is that um, many of these sequences are associated with cyanophages. So these are viruses that infect cyanobacteria. Um, and cyanobacteria are, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the organisms that started oxygenic photosynthesis on earth. So before plants, you know, cyanobacteria were the ones that sort of innovated oxygenic photosynthesis. Um, and so um, it's really fascinating that, you know, there are sequences that are associated with the cyanophages because phages would not exist unless the, the uh, cyanobacteria didn't exist. Um, and 
there's also a mix of phages as well as bacteria. So all of the circles that are um, blue as opposed to orange, those are bacterial sequences. And uh, all of the names that are in, in uh, green, those are sequences that come from genomes that have photosynthetic proteins as well. So um, the main takeaway from this slide is that the class O-clade, uh, whereas, you know, like all the other classes, they, they're they're sort of representing like all kingdoms of life. The class O-clade is really associated with marine organisms and in particular cyanophages. That's really interesting. Um, okay, so we'll come back to this at the end. Um, if we go to uh, slide 18, um, one of the first analysis uh, analyses that we did on the class O-clade was to just compare them to like known, like biochemically known sequences. So um, I should have clarified what an all versus all blast is, but it, you can think of this as doing a sequence alignment, a pairwise sequence alignment. So if you look at every plot, there's four of them shown here. So let's just focus on one, uh, such as the Synecococcus phage SCBP4. Uh, what this plot means is that we took the class O sequence from this phage, okay? And then we did pairwise sequence alignments with all of the sequences in our in our data set from the class one and the class two clades. The class one clades in blue and the class two clades in yellow, okay? And we see that there is a different shape in these histograms. And uh, this um, E value is, the, the lower the, this uh, E value is, so the more negative it is, that means that more similar the sequence is. And we can see already that if we just look at the entire group of the class one sequences in our data set versus the class two sequences, class O sequences resemble uh, class two, okay? So just a reminder of what class one and two are, I showed on the sort of margins of the slide, the class one uses a ferritin subunit Whereas the class two RNRs use that, they don't have another protein. They just have a cofactor, a cobalamin cofactor that's related to vitamin B12. So um, this could have been the reason why there was confusion originally in the, the field of RNR and what these sequences from these class O sequences were. Um, I think that, you know, initially people thought that they could be class two RNRs and not a, a sort of distinct class. But um, if you look even more closely, such as um, if you go to slide 19, right? So you can't just think about the protein in isolation and think about its function. You also have to see like where it is in the genome of these organisms. So here on the top half, I'm showing um, the gene neighborhoods of three different organisms. Um, and the blue uh, sort of shapes, those represent the sequence for the RNR catalytic subunit. And in all, sequences that were fully sequenced, the genomes that were fully sequenced, um, we found that there was a, a ferritin-like uh, gene that's like immediately downstream. So downstream as in like to the right of the catalytic subunit. And that was really interesting because um, it was annotated as ferritin-like. So you immediately think that maybe it actually requires um, this ferritin because it's like always together, these two genes. Um, and that is more reminiscent of a class one RNR. Um, and, but the reason why it had not been classified definitively as a class one RNR is because these ferritin-like uh, genes do not really actually show a lot of similarity to known like bona fide class one ferritin uh, subunits. Um, 
And for those of you um, who don't know, um, in the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of um, advances in structure prediction um, and AlphaFold is one of those uh, methods. Um, and AlphaFold, however, you know, is actually able to sort of tell us much more than what sequence alignments can do. And actually, if you if you take these ferritin-like gene sequences and have AlphaFold build a predictive model for you, it looks like what's shown here. And that type of structure is very much a ferritin fold. Um, and so this was really fascinating um, because if, even though the sequence is class two-like, this is telling us that the mechanism is probably more class one-like. Um, and so if we go to slide 20, we're going to zoom in even more into the catalytic subunit, so where the active site is. So um, we used a method called cryoelectron microscopy or cryoEM, and uh, this is you know a technique that um, has become really important um, in recent years, and has given us the you know a, a way to um, sort of look at the structure of proteins without making crystals of them. So anyway, we were after you know. Uh, a few months of like really characterizing this protein, we were able to get a structure. And uh, what we're seeing here um, in the outline that's in, in white is like the cryoEM map and built inside it is the sort of atomic model of that. Um, and there are lots of interesting thing, things to say about this structure, but you know, in, in the interest of time, what I want to focus on is the active site. So in the orange box, and you can see what's like um, zoomed in, there are three amino acids that are I want to draw your attention to. The yellow one with the sphere at the end, that is the cysteine, the special cysteine on the finger loop. That's where, you know, we get that radical. Ultimately, it's kind of like lighting a candle, right? So that's the candle that we have to light. And next to the that cysteine, we have two tyrosines that has, um, those are the ones with rings and the, the red stick at the end. Uh, those are the tyrosine residues. We see two tyrosines that are stacked. Um, and we call that like uh, Y is just the abbreviation for a tyrosine. So when there's two of them like that, we call that a YY dyad or a tyrosine dyad. And what's really um, structurally interesting about this is that um, for any structural biologist in the audience, these two um, amino acids are on uh, on the same beta strand and they're adjacent to each other. So the fact that these, side, these um, amino acids are sort of pointing in the same direction is already unusual structurally. And that is like a hallmark of the class one RNRs because the way radical transfer happens inside this protein to sort of light that candle is through uh, passing the radical from those like red portions of the tyrosine residues to that um, yellow sphere. And so there's like a path that is like, sort of you can see structurally in there. And that means that um, most likely it uses the same mechanism as the class one RNRs um, where we have a ferritin subunit that sort of first generates a radical and then it comes in close proximity to the catalytic subunit to pass this radical all the way to that um, special cysteine. So this is really interesting. Um, and if we go to class, uh, sorry, slide 21, um, why this is really interesting is telling us that the class O RNRs probably are oxygen dependent, just like the class one RNRs, okay? So uh, to sort of summarize the structural part of this, if you go to slide 22, um, so the alpha fold model of that gene that is always associated with the, the class O RNR, 
looks to be a ferritin, right? So that that's the, the green box, kind of similar to the green box in the class one mechanism. And the CRAU-EM structure of the uh, catalytic subunit really looks like a class one active site that it has that stacked tyrosine next to the cysteine. Uh, and this is the recipe you need to have this oxygen dependent mechanism. So based on that, um, we can sort of think about a model for evolution and that is slide 23. And uh, this is actually kind of like the end of my first part of my talk. And I think it could be a good place to just end the talk altogether and we can have discussion. Um, but so let, let's sort of piece everything together um so we're on slide 23 um the ancestor to the modern rnr that's the ancestral rnr that's that's all the way to the left okay so that that's the starting point um we think that it appeared before oxygen was uh, filling the atmosphere on earth and the reason is we think that is because we see uh the sort of like change in the usage of the cofactor necessary to make that radical Right, and we see like a diversity from like very oxygen sensitive all the way to requiring oxygen. So uh, if you sort of align this ancestral planet to the sort of bottom arrow, you see that, you know, it's, it emerged during the time when the planet was anoxic, didn't have oxygen. Um, but the class, the presence of the class ORNRs is really significant because that's telling us that um, at some point, um, when the class three RNRs diverged, it sort of diverged from the last common ancestor of the aerobic RNR. So the RNRs that had to, that were part of organisms that had to adapt to oxygen on Earth. Um, and the fact that the class O RNRs are so associated with cyanophages suggested that they, you know, could be very closely associated with the advent of oxygenic photosynthesis, which uh, was innovated by cyanobacteria. Um, and from um, uh, on this sort of like this branch of the uh, aerobic RNRs, once we have that divergence of the class O RNRs, then we see this um, the divergence of the class one and the two RNRs. And what's really cool about this part is that um, for a long time we thought that the class one RNRs were the most recently evolved. However, what we're seeing now is that this mechanism that uses this ferritin that requires an oxygen to to make that um, radical was already appeared before the class one RNRs uh, appeared in the class O RNRs. Um, and so the way to interpret this is that, um, you know, um, shortly after, and by shortly, it's probably still like billions of years, right? Um, not billions, but like on the order of, of um, maybe like hundreds of millions of years after oxygen photosynthesis was innovated on the planet, um, there was enough oxygen locally that organisms had to adapt to that, uh, even though that the planet wasn't filled with the um, with oxygen such that it was like permanently uh, a totally different atmosphere. And so that that event is um, called the Great Oxygenation Event, and that is sort of dated by geochemical records. Like if you think about like the rust layers inside the sediments where um, you had enough oxygen in the atmosphere that you could sort of form those rust sediments. But before then, there was already oxygen on Earth that sort of promoted um, or that really like uh, put pressure on life to adapt to it. And, and this is what I think that the class one, uh, the, sorry, the uh, r, r family evolution is telling us. Um, 
so now it's seven o'clock. Um, I, I think instead of going on to the next story, I should just take questions and sort of turn this into a discussion. Well, thank you so much for this amazing talk and for explaining this in such a really, like a way that even I could understand it. So it was really wonderful. And um, so just to ask one question. Um, so in the, um, like in the data analysis, like, or in the data that you had from different uh, organisms, were there um, anaerobic microorganisms in there? And is there some way where you, because you kind of hypothesized that there were locally um, previously already maybe some oxygen and they kind of, a few species had to kind of adapt to that. And we have locally uh, regions where there's really no oxygen and there are even microorganisms that like produce micro, uh, oxygen in the dark. We had like a guest speaker here. So do you have data from these in there that could us maybe give clues the other way around, basically? Thank you. Oh yeah, thanks. Um, yes, yeah, so in the 7,000 sequences in our phylogeny, um, there are um, like basically all of the ones that the class three RNRs uh, come from are either strict anaerobes so organisms that really require the lack of oxygen or facultative anaerobes so they could switch um, from maybe like an aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. Um, it's hard to say, like we didn't see like strong patterns though in terms of uh, the organisms and like whether they're strict anaerobes versus uh, facultative anaerobes and like where they lie in the phylogenetic tree. and. Part of the reason why I think that happened is because the sort of divergence happened such a long time ago that you know we're seeing really like just the modern sequences of the class three RNRs. Um, yeah, so um, I don't know if I can really answer that question. Um, it, it basically happened such a long time ago that you we, we can only sort of um, infer that adaptations happen based on the fact that these new biochemical classes appeared. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's, will it be possible even one day to like, you know, the original cell or you know, it's it's such a long time ago that um, it seems looks for me that it's kind of is almost impossible. But on the other hand, if you have this certain amount of DNA and, you know, these molecules available, how many options throughout these hundreds of millions of years can you go through and probably we just repeat like design or possibilities uh, or mixtures that uh, happened before like do you think that's the case that's a really good question so um i should say you know from phylogenetic inference we are trying to get some information about our past but we can never really know what happened in in reality right so th these are you know, sort of still hypotheses based on, um, on on models that you know that we computed, and um, so we we won't know. But you know, one thing that is really cool about doing phylogenetic inference is that you also, in order to figure out how the branchings occurred, um, you also had to sort of predict what the the sequences would have been in the past, and those are called ancestral sequences. And um, that is something that we are interested in is looking at these 
sort of sequence predictions at these branching points um, to see, you know, like, I, I personally think that we're not going to see a lot of variability in catalytic mechanisms um, by studying these ancestral mechanisms, uh, ancestral sequences, but we, uh, we, I think we will learn things about um, other sort of functional parts of the uh, sort of other sort of functionally important things about the protein, such as like regulatory mechanisms, uh, which I think, you know, didn't have to have appeared like billions of years ago. It's something that, you know, could, an organism can still, um, still uh, uh, sort of evolve and continue to change. Yeah, thank you. Um, Rose, please go ahead. Or Dr. Shah also unmuted. So Dr. Shah, go ahead and then Rose. Okay. Oh, sure. Thank you so much, Nazumi. That was a really, very fascinating work so far. And <laughs> my question, uh, you might answer my question later on, but specifically I was wondering about the immunochemistry and the type of the IHC and TBD because you mentioned about the RRM uh, class one also. Uh, uh, perfectly everything makes sense when you explain about the cobalamin B12 and uh, we can think about the even increasing of the homocysteine. But uh, if you want to uh, explain us about the kind of the marker or antibody, which it can help us specifically for the colon tumor. Did you think about that? And uh, did you came up with some, some investigation around it? Okay, um, let's see if I can try to understand the question. So is this more like in terms of disease re relevance? Yeah, because uh, perfectly, if you heard about RRM1 is one of those IHC antibody that they are using for the improvement of the tumor diagnosis for the colon cancer. And when you just explain about all those chemistry behind, it does make sense totally for me. And I was just wondering uh, uh, when you want to think about the, I mean, uh, medicine, how mm -hmm. you can, uh, how you could find it beneficial or do you have any idea about? Yeah, that's a really great question. So, um, you know, RNRs are actually um, current drug targets for cancer therapies. Um, and eukaryotes generally use the class one RNRs. So uh, we, the RNRs that we use don't use the cobalamin cofactor, but um, the, um, so there are actually FDA approved drugs that, cancer drugs that, that um, currently exist are, that are being used uh, for, you know, breast cancer and maybe other ones. Um, I think advanced pancreatic cancer. And so, you know, maybe not like the best drug, but, um, the reason why, though, is because RNR is important for cell proliferation because it's the only way we can get more deoxyribonucleotides to make DNA. Um, and so that is definitely one like area that has been actively studied. Uh, but another way in which the RNR family is medically very important is that um, different pathogens might use a different biochemical mechanism. And so that is... Um, Actually, if you're interested, you know, like if you go to slide 30, you'll see some common human pathogens. They use a, a different type of class one RNRs than what humans use. Uh, and that is like one of the reasons why, you know, there's interest from the NIH, for example, in understanding um, the, how we, we might be able to sort of target uh, pathogen, sort of pathogenic RNRs without, you know, uh, 
um, hurting the host, and you know that would be a different strategy to fighting uh, infections and, and that type of disease. Exactly, because they, they have a use for that, for the fabrication, especially for the viral, and you okay. explain it partially. So I'm just passing the mic to the next person, and at the end, if we have time, I, I might ask more questions. Thank you so much. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to be annoying for a second and like do a hypothesis. Um, let's say I'm this uber skeptic person who mm -hmm. is skeptical about the idea that this kind of analysis is valid and ideally I want to figure out a way to get a sample um, of either uh, bacteria that are somewhat cryopreserved or somehow. Uh, I know like our ice sheets only go back like, 2 million years or so, this is 2.3 billion years. Is there some way we can actually find like some place we could core, some some place where we could find like a bacteria that has been cut off from the rest of the earth or are just uh, laying dormant uh, mm -hmm. until we come around and like sample them and see uh, how life has changed. Like is, is, is there some place where we can do that? Like go back billions of years? That, that is not an annoying question. I mean, first of all, you know, I mean, I think it's really important to be skeptical about this, any type of analysis, but especially uh, something like this, because it is really like purely computational. Um, and no offense to people who are just computationalists out there, you know, but I, you know, I, I think that, you know, like, as we get more sequence information, and as um, sort of like, maybe theories of evolution continue to improve, we might get like, you know, different answers or, or better answers. Um, who knows, right? Um, that question, though, about like, whether we can find um, sort of, uh, like actual fossils that are useful. I mean, I would love to find something like that, right? But I don't know if we'll find anything um, that is viable. Um, that has been really isolated. Uh, I, I don't know it's possible, um, you know, there are spores that, you know, have been, I think, revived from being uh, below the, like the earth mantle rocks or something, like some extreme pressure because it's below the, the rocks, below the sea level, um, that um, were revived. So maybe, but I, it's, yeah, I, it would be really hard, I think, to, to uh, be able to tell <laughs> what you're looking at. <laughs> So this is going to sound crazy, but um, the event when the Ch uh, Chukla uh, crater was formed, I can now pronounce that, in the dinosaur event, um, it spewed out a lot of material into space, right? Like that was, uh, if, have you read the paper that goes into the timeline of the last day of the dinosaurs? Like uh, one of the events that, that end up killing most of the, the life on the planet is that uh, the material the, after the impact, there's ejecta, and the ejecta goes and spreads, and it's, it goes in, into some of them. A lot of it is in suborbital trajectories. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, just give me a second. Uh, it's, it's, it's on a suborbital tra trajectory, and when it reenters, it starts heating up the Earth's atmosphere, and the, the re so much materials reenters together and so quickly that it raises the Earth's atmosphere for like a minute or so above um, 
or was it a thousand degrees centigrade but above at least above the boiling point of water right and it's it's, it's basically mass plant sterilization so but some of those rocks also went on an escape trajectory from earth and some of them might have even hit the moon like uh there is these proposals that where they want to track the uh, see when the moon had an atmosphere. So they're going to do coring in the permanently shadowed craters of the moon to find uh, the ice samples from the from that time and then uh, evaluate the moon's atmosphere. Maybe we could find like a tiny rock that flew out of that event uh, <laughs> on, and is landed on the moon and it has a sample preserved for all of these billions of years, like like one hundreds of millions of years, is that is this something I mean, like that possible? I mean, it's possible, yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be I just want to say. So are you guys? I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's a public room. Something stuff like this happened. Just please go okay. on. <laughs> Gotcha. I, I was going to say, yeah, no, don't you I... think perhaps that the deep sea sediment cores might have a better, uh, at least a higher chance probably than the dark side of the moon, which seems like the light side of the moon might be better since it's less bombarded in terms Oh, no, of... uh, permanently shadowed craters, not the dark side of the moon in the sense we can't see. It's a, it's a crater uh, towards the polar ends of the moon. They're craters uh, because of the angle of the sun where uh, these are permanently cryogenic, like uh, there oh, no light ever reaches them, right? So there's ice preserved there from the time when the moon was more, uh, still had a magnetic field, it was more active and still had somewhat of an atmosphere. So, sorry. Yeah, no, understood. I still think that it might be more likely that we will find um, some better specimens in deep sea sediments. What do you think of that? Oh, these are, I mean, these are all like really fascinating proposals. Um, I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not well versed enough at thinking about the sort of viability of these different sampling locations, um, I think that I would never discount them as a possibility. And I, I would personally be fascinated by either. Um, but whether knowing like one is better or the other, I just, I just don't know. Um, it, yeah. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Like, people <laughs> need to get better at saying, I, I don't know, great, great question. <laughs> you're, you're awesome, Dr. Andy. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the, the great questions. I mean, I, it's a really great discussion. I had a very specific question. So ferritin in this context still means iron. Is that right? You think. Um, it, it, so iron is a, a common. But um, in the R&Rs, um, so in the class one R&Rs, they all use ferritins, like I told you, but they don't always use iron. Um, there's there are subclasses within the uh, class one RNRs that use manganese, uh, like two manganese ions, uh, ions or a combination of iron and manganese. And so, uh, but it is designed well to hold metals, but yes, fair, uh, irons are, are um, sort of easy to sort of uh, uh, get incorporated <laughs> into the ferritin assembly. Interesting. Okay. So I, 
um, you know, if I miss this, I apologize, but I'd be really interested to, to hear your explanation of ferritin because, you know, in chemistry, ferrous metals generally tend to include iron. And then if you were talking about a ferritin level and perhaps like a clinical patient, you'd be looking at iron, iron um, indicators. But so could you expand on that? Oh, um, interesting. So I wonder, so in a clinical sample, when you say ferritin levels, does this specify like which ferritin? Great, great question. I've never had the panel drawn. I just know that patients talk about having um, this, this uh, assay on them. Dr. Shaw, do you, have you ran a ferritin panel and could you speak to that at all? Ferritin level normally is the part of the, I mean, general lab that we are just running on a patient. But specifically, what type of ferritin? No, I don't know about that. We are just, I mean, running as it needed. But I just, uh, in the previous question, I asked Nozomi about the B12 and ferritin and cobalamin and how it can be connected with the uh, absorption of the B12, especially when we are talking about uh, eye effect or and all of those things. So I think my question was relevant with your question. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, so Zomi, you're saying that um, it could be manganese plus iron or just iron. Are there any other configurations or what else can you tell us about the um, yeah, so I, I just realized, you know, that um, there there is a protein that people sort of uh, informally called ferritins that it is a ferritin fold. Um, so when you're doing a, a ferritin assay, you know, if you actually Google ferritin like or like you find it on Wikipedia, you'll see a structure that looks like a ball. Um, and so if, in fact, if you want to look at the one on Wikipedia, that that ferritin is an iron storage protein. Um, and, and it is called a ferritin protein. Um, the ferritin that's used by RNR is, has a similar fold, but it's not the same protein. So, but they're, you know, probably evolutionarily related in terms of the structure. Uh, so it's, it's and a function, sort of, perhaps, sorry, and function perhaps. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Um, so ferritin, when people, you know, maybe like talk about ferritin proteins, um, I think they're thinking about iron storage. Um, so that, that could be a good way to think about the iron levels inside of the body. Um, and, you know, it is designed well to hold metals, uh, but it can also do um, sort of actual chemistry as well. And that, that's what the R and R ferritins are, are, are sort of good at. Wow, and so prior, <clears throat> prior to how many hundred, we were talking about geological time scales before, I think might've been one of, <clears throat> one of the words you were looking for. So this is a phenomena that started how many hundreds of millions of years ago? That's a really good question. Um, I'm assuming, you know, if the ferritins were being used, uh, you know, you know, like around the time that photo photosynthesis uh, appeared that would be like billions of years ago, right? So, um, like a few billion years ago is, so this fold would have already existed then. Um, and a protein's really just fascinating though, because you can have, um, very different functions for the same fold. 
right? And even though I think all ferritins are probably good at holding metals, because um, it's not just the fold, but it's also the, the specific amino acids that are, are coming together. If you refer to my slides, you'll see that there, um, you know, there's some symmetry as well that helps with the, the, the sort of arrangement of the, um, the, the metals. Um, yeah, you know, but we haven't actually done a phylogenetic anal analysis of the ferritins themselves, then I think that would be really interesting too, because they do. Um, so yeah, when I'm use saying ferritins, I'm using very loosely the structural family, right? So, but functionally, I think it actually spans many different types of proteins. Wow, yeah, thank you for for teaching that. I was not aware that of all these details, at least some of them. <laughs> Um, so really appreciate that. And also, I want to leave some room for Coco. Coco, welcome. Give me a second. I'm getting dressed. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, then, no, then go, go ahead, go ahead. oh, I just wanted to check in with Nozomi how much um, time you still have left because we've been going for almost an hour and a half so you know i wanted mm -hmm. to give you a chance to, to get some rest um but um yeah yeah just let us know and then if it's like one more question or two and then <laughs> one or two sounds good to me i mean i'm really enjoying the discussion but i know that everybody's probably hungry right now so i don't want to keep you from dinner either <laughs> well we are fine but <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry, people are eating on mute and all these other sorts. Yeah, of you, you're <laughs> the only one that has to keep talking. So okay. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's do like around two questions and then and then go from there. So, Dr. Shah, did you want to ask the other question you had in mind? or? Uh, I might wait uh, till the end if there is, I mean, time for that because I I'm interested to see that what is coming at the conclusion. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, based on your work, um, would you also be able to make like predictions for life on other planets? Maybe how life on Mars would have looked like. Um, do you think, you know, aren't ours? would be important everywhere in the universe for life or do you think like we cannot really make predictions like that um on other you know planets because we don't know enough about the environment hmm. yeah i think well i mean i love this question I, th I think that you know the honest answer though is that i think it is very difficult um i don't know if an I mean, this R&R is really only necessary for DNA-based life. Um, and there, I think, are, I'm sure, other mechanisms for doing the same chemistry. And it's just that on, on, on Earth, this is the way it, it works. And this is the way that, it, you know, nature decided it works. It's going to keep using it. And it doesn't want to lose this protein, like, and so badly so that, you know, it's just going to keep adapting so that, we, you know, we can use it in different environments. Um, but, you know, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can say, you know, that this was a type of project that I've, I've been wanting to do for, you know, like over a decade because, you know, I've been sort of enamored by this enzyme family for so long. And 
And um, having done the, the sort of analysis, I realized just how complicated it really is. And so, um, you know, there are actually not that many studies done to this level of, of like, you know, complicated enzyme families. So, you know, a good place to really start is just doing more of these studies so that we have, we can sort of start thinking about predictions, right? We, I think we, we're still kind of at the basic science stage where we're trying to more, to understand more. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Thank you uh, for that answer. And, um, oh, Rose, you, you had that question. So please go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just going to ask if you had like $20 million in, uh, supercomputing credit, what would you do? Like, would you run this genuine question, right? Like if tomorrow, um, one of these large foundations, like the, um, uh, Simmons foundation, like they're the Flatiron Institute, et cetera. Um, they go like, Hey, we'll give you $20 million of supercomputer time. Uh, what do you want? Like, what is the, what is the way forward here? Well, I mean, that is a really great question. Also, you guys, you know, I love how, how big you guys are thinking. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of evolutionary questions that I'm still interested in. Um, and, you know, obviously that would really help to have uh, computational time. Um, so, you know, there, there are other enzyme families that will shed light onto uh, not only, you know, how um, like the early planet may have um, sort of um, been, um, as well as, you know, learning the connection between like how are, how does life adapt at the sort of protein level, level to changing environments um, and all of that, you know, I think obviously like having more computational time would really help because just, you know, considering just how long it took to just do this one. Um, but you know, my lab doesn't just do evolution. So we, you know, actually the reason why we got into this is because, uh, we're interested in studying, uh, um, understanding what makes protein seem alive in, in the sense that, you know, um, coming from a structural perspective, right? So if you, you see these pictures of protein structures and they're, they look very static, but we all know that it's not static. It's dynamic. It's always moving. Every molecule is moving. Um, but you know, macromolecules, I think are able to adopt really rich emotions that are essential for its function, for its chemistry, and also regulating that chemistry. And we don't really understand how that works. And, you know, this is when people talk about proteins, we, they almost seem like they're alive somehow because they're just, you know, able to do these amazing functions. And really what, you know, my lab would like to be able to do is to understand that the molecular mechanisms that uh, sort of, uh, make protein seem alive. And that, that to me is like trying to understand the relationship between this protein sequence, um, and protein three-dimensional structure and how it moves and then the function. Right. And so connecting all of that is really like one of the ultimate goals, um, of my field and thinking about the sort of dynamic part is really difficult. So that, that's another thing that I would spend money on. So like the evolution part is, is really interesting to me just because I'm, I'm really interested in the past, but it's also like a way to sort of rationally change protein sequence. And so it's, it's one way to, to sort of change sequence and then see how that changes all the other things. Um, but that's really just kind of getting at like part of, part of, um, what we really want to know ultimately. Um, so 
the sort of thinking about dynamics requires a lot of computation as well. Um, so yeah, that that maybe that the way that I would answer it is I would do like ten million in protein dynamics and ten million in evolutionary studies. And um, but I I do think that you know like if we really you know that there there are separate goals and common goals between the two halves, um, but fundamentally, if we can understand, you know, what why these macromolecules, these proteins, um, are able to do these amazing functions with you know moving beyond these static pictures, that would be like really amazing. That's that's an excellent answer. Um, like uh, I like thinking about agent-based kind of simulations to see hey how do these uh how do these pieces come about what's connecting them why do they exist and like that kind of thing like what is the simulation that we're thinking about um well all sorts um so you know because you know my lab is kind of at the interface of sort of physics and biochemistry, the physics side, you know, we're, what we're trying to do is, is think about like developing methods that allow us to sort of think about um, or visualize these protein motions. Um, and that's traditionally very difficult to do because in structural biology, um, the way you get a clear picture is to have all of them be identical to each other. And that is not going to be possible if they're moving, right? So if they're jiggling around, they're not going to look like they're identical. And, but this like sort of you know, in order to get enough signal that averaging is necessary for like all structural techniques. And so um, it's always kind of like a trade-off of like getting an insight into to motion means that we're probably going to lose some other information about at like higher resolution. And so like how, how can we sort of um, tease apart the information from these moving uh, molecules and sort of interpret that? Um, and that... Um, that requires um, sort of, you know, like more data. So some of the computation is like being able to crunch the data. Um, and some of the computation is just like, you know, thinking about new software that needs to be developed to, um, to be able to analyze the data. Um, and then there's computation that needs to be done in terms of like simulating uh, these sort of motions and then seeing if it agrees with uh, experiment and, um, you know, there's like an entire field of molecular dynamics. And of course, that, that's kind of like what we want is something like that, except we want it to be absolutely realistic. And that we have not achieved that yet because that's really difficult, um, uh, especially if we want uh, these simulations to be um, as accurate, say, as an experiment. Um, so in experiments, we can put error bars on things. Um, and that precision is actually extremely small for certain techniques. Um, but we're we're not there yet with with computational techniques. So like sort of bridging that gap would also be really important. Thank you so much for entertaining me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for those questions and the answer. It's really interesting. We could go on and talk about what means life and where does it start. Do you think? You know, those things, <laughs> uh, all molecules that, you know, change around, um, is it a very simple form of life? But that's maybe questions for your next, you know, when you come back here next year someday or something, if you would 
if you would honor us again, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for the great discussion and um, for tuning in. Yeah, no, thank you for coming and giving this amazing talk and answering our questions. Um, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And we wish you all the best. And maybe you get this grant from the Summons Foundation. <laughs> I actually, <laughs> actually know, know uh, a friend of mine is working there at the computational um, okay. part there. See? <laughs> See? It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, um, yeah, so all the luck and uh, I hope you get all the grants you want. And, um, and yeah, congratulations for this wonderful work and life. Like you seem to, you know, you, you seem to figure out how to find time for different passions, which is amazing. Uh, so congratulations on that too thank you i'm not sure if i'm doing a great job at that but <laughs> i appreciate it well well great we are life you know we are always improving nothing is perfect <laughs> as long as we try <laughs> okay yeah enjoy the rest of your evening thank you everyone for coming um enjoy the rest of your morning day evening wherever you are we appreciate you coming and if you like discussions like this follow the club uh, follow our guest speaker and um and our moderators uh tomorrow we'll have a talk with dr c and he is using also um omics data integration uh, to develop personalized drug discoveries. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm sorry, it's on Thursday, not tomorrow. It's on Thursday. So, um, yeah, thank you so much, Zumi, again. This was wonderful. It was such a treat. And thank you, everyone. <laughs> All right, thank you, everyone. Yeah, close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.